Hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. Our focus today will be on verses 1 to 15. We're looking at now the fourth image that the scriptures use to describe the nature of the church. We've seen that the church is the spirit born family of God, it is only the Holy Spirit who can bring the church into existence at all. This is not a man-made institution. We've seen that the church is the spirit-filled building of God. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is not an accumulation of people. It's not a pile of bricks. It is a building that is given shape and that grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that the church is the spirit-empowered body of Christ, the spirit-empowered body of Christ with various members performing various functions, each and every one needed and necessary for the total upbuilding of the church and empowered by the spirit. We come now to this truth. The church is also the Spirit-sanctified Bride of Christ. The Spirit-sanctified Bride of Christ. That's the image that the Apostle Paul is going to use in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Bride of Christ. And he uses this image in the midst of nothing short of a war. Nothing short of a war is raging as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And it's the same war that is raging in this room right now, whether we are aware of it or not. And it is a battle over your devotion to Christ your exclusive and sincere and wholehearted devotion to Christ as Lord. While the players are different, the circumstances are different, that same struggle is alive and well right now in your heart and mine, and we need to be more aware of it. We need to be more alert to this struggle. And the truth that the Apostle Paul highlights is that the church is spoken for. All those who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, purchased by the blood of Jesus, are spoken for. Spoken for. We can't afford to be unfaithful. We can't afford to let our eyes wander. We can't afford to ever think that somehow we can trade up. We were promised to one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't ever let anyone or anything come between you and the Savior who gave his life, gave his very life 
on the cross for you and for me, for his people. Don't let anyone or anything come between you and the Savior who gave his life to redeem you. But remember, you are spoken for. You are spoken for. You are promised to someone else, to Jesus himself. That's what we see in these verses. And as we walk through, we're going to highlight various seductions that Paul is trying to warn the Corinthians about so that we also can avoid those seductions because they are with us. They are with us. Let's begin by reading the first three verses. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here's what seems to have been happening. Sometime after the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he paid the Corinthians another visit. And as far as we know, it was a joyous visit. But sometime after this, other professional teachers visited Corinth. Men who made a living by their rhetorical skills. And this was common in the ancient world. They didn't have universities as such, but they had professional scholars and rhetoricians who would go around from city to city and teach and who would make a living by their teaching. And evidently, they were Christian teachers who did this, or so-called Christian teachers, as we'll see. And they were good, really good. The people liked what they were hearing. And in comparison with Paul, they thought, wow, this is what we've been waiting for. Now, here is someone who knows how to speak. Here is deep truth. This is profound. Oh, i got to get more of this. Paul, pff, we don't need him anymore. And in particular, they're attacking Paul himself. Whereas in 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul is dealing with various moral and spiritual issues. For example, as we saw last week, what does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper? How are we to do this? What are Christian sexual ethics and social ethics? That's what he was dealing with. But now Paul himself has become the target of attacks. And so what you find in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13 are some of the most intense and emotional of Paul's writings. His reputation as an apostle of Jesus Christ is at stake. He himself is under attack. And he's 
between a rock and a hard place as he tries to defend himself. Because on the one hand, he has people saying, this guy doesn't have the credentials or the effectiveness to be a real apostle. He doesn't have the credentials. He hasn't gone to the right schools. He doesn't have the right background. He's not really effective. We've, we've drawn far larger crowds now than he ever did. So clearly we're superior, right? So that's what they're saying on the one hand. On the other hand, they're accusing Paul of exercising too much authority. Too much authority. He claims to be an apostle. How do you know that? He claims to speak from God. He writes as though he were inspired by the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? And so Paul is between a rock and a hard place. If he tries to say, oh, no, here are my credentials. Well, then they're just going to say, see, told you. Here he goes, arrogance, just exercising his authority. If he tries to emphasize the authority that he's received from God, then they're going to say, see, he has no real effectiveness. He doesn't really have any potential as a leader. And so this is what Paul means when he says, I hope, Corinthians, you will put up with me in a little foolishness. I'm going to start talking about myself. I don't want to do this. I would much rather talk about Christ, but you force my hand. There's no way for me to counteract these arguments and these accusations and these charges without engaging in a little promotion. But trust me, he's saying, trust me, humor me. In other words, humor me, okay? This isn't about me. This is about Jesus. This is about your relationship to Jesus. This is about your fidelity and faithfulness to the one husband to whom I promised you. So humor me, Corinthians. And he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He's saying that in my heart is the same intense passion that the God of Israel has been talking about all along. You go to a book like Hosea, the prophet Hosea, and God is comparing himself to a husband who has been faithful to his wife, but his, faithful, his, his wife has been unfaithful to him. And his unfaithful wife is Israel, his people. And God is saying, I am jealous for you. I am intensely passionate about laying claim to you. I love you that much. This is not a God who stands off cool. Collected? No, he goes after his people. He wants you and he wants me. Paul says, that's how I feel about you. I'm not in this for what I can get from you, Corinthians. I promised you to one husband. You're engaged. There's a ring on your finger. In other words, there's a ring on your finger. Do you remember any of this, I promise you to one husband. And this wedding is to happen when the Lord Jesus returns. But until then, you are engaged. You're spoken for. You've been promised to him. And Paul's saying, I, I'm, I'm just a friend of the groom. A friend of the groom. Maybe even the father of the bride. And it's my job to not let your eyes wander. But 
I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid that Genesis 3 is playing out right now in Corinth. And I need to tell you, assembled here, that Genesis 3 and what happened to Eve can and does happen to you and to me. We have got to be alert to this because the failing here is not so much a moral failure. It does take that form, but it starts with an intellectual failure. The absence of right belief, the absence of doctrine is what leads to this. I'm afraid your minds may be led astray. And wherever your mind goes, your heart is not far behind, is it? We are what we watch. We are what we read. We are what we think about. So wake up. Be alert. We have a real enemy. And he wants to inflict real damage on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we need to be reminded we are spoken for. But what are the seductions that he uses to lead us astray? What is this cunning, this craftiness that he uses? The first is the seduction of improvement. The seduction of improvement. And we see this very clearly in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, our ancestors. God gave them one rule. One rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. You can enjoy everything else here. This is all for you. Look around you and see the gracious provision of my love for you. Enjoy it. I want you to enjoy this. But there's one guardrail, one line. But here comes the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, deliberately twisting God's words. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See what he's doing? He's saying God somehow is withholding something from you. You can improve. You can improve on what God has given to you. You can trade up. Just as the Corinthians are trading up from the Apostle Paul. Paul, we don't need him anymore. He is so yesterday. He is so old news. We need a better speaker, okay? This will never pass. Once we've heard these guys, we don't need Paul anymore. The seduction of improvement. The voice in your heart and in your mind that says, you can do better. Oh, you can do better. Why settle? God's holding something back from you. Go ahead, reach out, take it, eat, enjoy it. 
And as Eve learned, and as Adam learned, and as the Corinthians learned, and as we all learn, you can't improve on what God has given. And one way or another, we have to run into that hard truth. You can't improve on God, and you cannot improve on what God has given, but oh, how we think we can, don't we? (laughs) Oh, how we think we can. We don't need God's rules. We don't even need God. And this is why the world is the mess that it is. It's not a mystery. We're living in the midst of a world that has said, we don't need God. And look at what results. Violence, chaos, hatred, misery. This is what happens. This is what happens when we think we can improve on what God has said. God has spoken. Are we listening? Don't try to improve. Then we read verse 4. Paul says, I hope that you'll put up with this foolishness because other people seem to get your attention. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. What he's saying is that you're listening to them. Will you at least give me a hearing? And they're coming to you and they're preaching a different Jesus. They're preaching a different spirit. They're preaching a different gospel. And this brings us to the next seduction. That is the seduction of empty words. The seduction of empty words. Consider the words of the serpent. You won't die. Notice notice how the enemy works. He doesn't just come out with an outright falsehood. He uses half-truths. Because did they die after they ate the fruit? No, not physically. But spiritually they did. Spiritually they did. And one day they did die physically. Brought on by the curse of God upon their sinfulness. The same curse that is present now. And that we're reminded of every time we say goodbye to a loved one. The curse of death. So the enemy uses a half-truth. You're not going to die. It's okay. It's okay. Go ahead. And he's, he's using the name of God. He's trying to quote God. Remember, Satan knows the Scriptures better than I do. Or you do. He can quote Scripture. Just think of Matthew 4, Jesus in the wilderness. Satan is quoting the scriptures to Jesus. And the only answer is to quote the scriptures back. But this is how Satan works. He takes the scriptures and he twists them. So that these preachers in Corinth, they're using all the right words. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the Spirit. They're talking about the gospel, but they're using the wrong dictionary. They're using the wrong dictionary. They're defining Jesus in their own terms, and in their own way, turning him into something he is not. They're using the Spirit and abusing the teaching of the Spirit to mean whatever they want it to mean. 
They're abusing the gospel and turning it into false news and bad news. And as Paul says in Galatians 1, there, there really is no other gospel. And anyone who tries to preach a different gospel, let him be cursed. If I preach any other Jesus, any other gospel than the one handed on, let me be cursed. If you hear it from an angel, let him be cursed. Empty words. And oh, how we are so susceptible in the church today to empty words. We only ask, are, do they talk about Jesus? Are they like, quoting the Bible? Oh, okay. Must, must be true. Must be true. Oh, no. Oh, no. Beware of any teaching that doesn't define Jesus according to the Word of God. Beware of anyone who tries to elevate the Holy Spirit above the Word of God. He inspired these words. Don't pit the Spirit against the Word. Let the Spirit interpret the Word to make the Word plain to you. Don't define the gospel in any other way than how God has revealed it. Or else it'll just be empty words. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian in the mid-20th century, had it right. He said this, some people preach a theology that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Let me say that one more time. A God without wrath. And oh, how the world doesn't believe in the wrath of God. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment. Do whatever you want through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So that you don't need the cross anymore. It's all empty words. Yes, there's God. Yes, there's Jesus. Yes, there's the cross. But it's all emptied of its meaning. And so I, my prayer is, is, Father, let this be a church where people's minds are sharpened. So that they can tell the difference between mere rhetoric and empty words and false teaching. Are you praying for true teaching in this church or not? Are you praying for true teaching in the church capital C? Because let me tell you, it is rampant. False teaching is rampant. Empty words are everywhere. And then we come to verses 5 to 11. Where Paul says, I do not think I am in the least inferior, inferior to these super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, 
Nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Here's what's going on. These professional speakers are coming in. They're saying, you know, you get what you pay for. If you want good teaching, if you want eloquent speech, you got to pay for it. Just pay us, and we'll provide what, what you need. We'll give you the services you need. Paul, on the other hand, generally made it a practice to not receive payment from the churches he was serving at that time. He would receive payment from other churches to then support himself, as he did from Macedonia in the province of Achaia, where Corinth is, but he doesn't support himself on what they're giving him. Why? So that no one can accuse him of peddling the gospel. As he says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So no one can accuse me of that. But see how his opponents are saying, Paul, he's not a real apostle. He doesn't even take payment for what he's doing. You can't trust him. And here's the seduction. The seduction of prestige. The seduction of prestige. Maybe the most urgent and relevant to us right now. Prestige. We want to look good in the eyes of the world. And usually how this starts is that we want to try to fit in to the world. We want to try to make the message of the gospel more palatable to people, more understandable to people. And, and there's something good and right about that. Let me show you how, what this looks like. In our church constitution, did you realize that one of the requirements of being a pastor is that you have to have attended seminary? Well, that's based in something good. It's good to be trained. It's good for people to have an educated ministry, to spend time devoted to learning the scriptures. But that can also be taken to an extreme. There's another church, I won't name any names, whose constitution stipulates that not only do you have to go to seminary, you have to have a doctorate to be pastor of their church. Now, why is that? Because this is a prestigious church. And we want the esteem of the world. All of that pride is lurking underneath. And churches, especially churches these days that are bleeding people. And these days when people have decided they have better things to do on Sunday mornings. They don't need church. They don't need God. Now the church is going to get desperate and, and see what can we do to get them back here to wring their hands. And what inevitably happens in, in seeking more prestige and esteem from the world is that we water down and compromise the message. Beware of that. We think, you can't talk about hell. You can't talk about judgment. You can't talk about blood. Oh, we got to tone that down. We got to tone that down. This is the truth. And I'm not authorized to water it down or change it, and neither are you. How dare we? But we think we need to. 
or else we'll lose the respect of the world. We won't, we'll be behind. And then, oh, they won't respect us and, and we'll, we'll be out of step with the culture. Oh, how, that would be terrible. Paul's saying, I don't care the, how they do it. This is the right way to do it. This is the right way to do it. And I don't need anyone's esteem. I don't need the world's prestige. I know I'm doing the right thing by my master. Remember this. What is it that's keeping people from believing? Is it because our music's not good enough? Is it because the preaching needs to be better? Is it because we don't have the right programs or the right ministries? No, it is sin. And who saves? God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He blows wherever He will as the wind blows. We can't control Him. All we can do is be faithful to be the church, to be the bride of Christ. To never think that we can improve on Him. To not lean on empty words. To not seek the world's prestige or respect. We don't need it. Be faithful. Call the blood of Jesus blood. Call God's judgment, judgment. Call hell, hell. It is the way the Bible defines it. And the Holy Spirit will honor that. I believe that with all of my heart. I hope you do too. Verses 12 to 15, he gets to the heart of the matter. Here's what's really going on. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Here we have the seduction of showiness. Oh, how we are so susceptible to this. Most people I know who have committed adultery in their marriage, who have been unfaithful, didn't set out to do it. They weren't looking around. But their eyes deceived them. And their eye problem led to a heart problem. And a heart problem led to a literal problem, a bodily problem. They didn't set out for this, but their eyes were led astray. And Paul is saying, your eyes, Corinthians, are led astray. Do you understand? It's all about show. It's all external. It's all form and no matter. There's no substance here. They're operating just as the father of lies does Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light because he's cunning. No one sets out to want to do Satan's will. It's because he tricks us, because he's crafty, because he's cunning, because we're not awake, because we're not alert. We're yawning. We have better things to do. This is why the world is the way it is, and this is why the church as a whole is in the condition that it is. Because we have been subject to his tactics, and we have given in. No, remember, you are spoken for. 
You were promised to another. We can't fall for the showiness. But the other reason we like the showiness is because this is something you can fake. You can show up in a church with stained glass windows. You can put on your Sunday best. You can tote your Bible and open your Bible and read your Bible. You can say prayers when called upon. You can play the religious game. We can all fake that. But you cannot fake the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we really need. Underneath all the show is there real substance. I don't, I don't want to be eloquent for the sake of eloquence. I don't want anybody to think, wow, I was really creative. Wow, he's brilliant. No! No! I want this truth to be plain. I want it to be simple. And I want it to be consistent. The truth of God's Word. Do you know why we're really here? Satan would have you come up with a thousand different reasons for being here. But I need to ask you if you're here for the right reason. Is your heart in it or not? So if you believe you're spoken for, if you know that you have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, what's the condition of your heart? Are you enticed by any of these seductions right now? Be honest. And if you're not, if you've never been born again, his Marriage proposal is on the table. How long are you going to make him wait? How long are you going to make him wait? He's ready and willing. And I want you to know, no one will ever be more faithful to you. No one will ever love you more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you doubt that, remember the cross. Remember that despite all the times that you have cheated on God, that I have cheated on God, He bled his life on the cross for you. How can we turn away? How can we take that for granted? No. No. The offer's on the table. His mercy is available. Don't put it off. There is nothing more urgent for you right now than to receive His offer of forgiveness and salvation, to be born again by the power of the Spirit. And if you belong to Him, Repent for the ways that you have wandered, for the ways that you have drifted, for the ways that you have played the religious game without putting your heart in it. And He is faithful to forgive. No one will love you more. No one will ever be more faithful. He will never, ever let you down. Cling to Him with everything you have. As we go to Him in prayer. Dear Lord, we confess that our hearts are so prone to wander. We confess that our minds get so distracted. We confess that we think we don't need you. But Lord, impress upon our hearts by the power of your Spirit just how desperate we are for you, just how hopeless and helpless we are apart from you. And I pray that if there is anyone hearing this message who has yet to receive your offer of mercy in Christ, I pray that this would be the day of salvation, that they would receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And for anyone here who has to acknowledge that they've drifted, 
Lord, bring them home. Bring them home. Bring me home, Lord, all by the power of your Spirit as we trust you. As we seek to let you guide us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.